Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Amber Boydston, Associate Professor of Political Science at UC Davis and author of Making the News, about how media influence framing and attention. Dr. Boydston and I explored how framing and attention are at play during the time of COVID-19. As we shelter in place, rely more and more on digital spaces for engagement and news, and navigate the ever-growing onslaught of information and misinformation delivered to us in our digital spaces. Welcome, Amber. It's great to have you on the show. All right. So to start, I would love to ask you, I was looking over, you know, your, your book, your website's homepage, and I saw on the homepage that you mentioned political science is largely the study of how scarce resources get distributed, and you focus in on that limited resource of attention. So putting that frame onto the COVID-19 moment, what are your initial thoughts about what frames you think have been getting the most attention in media coverage? The first thing to notice, I think, about the very appropriate high levels of attention that news outlets, that social media, that that uh, normal citizens have been giving to COVID-19 is that that's, that level of attention is both appropriate and it means that it's sucking out all of the oxygen from the room so that now we're not paying attention to any of the other things that that are also deserving of our attention. We're no longer paying hardly any attention to the presidential election and the primary. We're not paying attention to what's happening in Syria. We're not paying attention to all of the other things that are still, all of the other challenges that are still going on in our country and around the world from gun violence to mass migration, all of those things have dropped off the radar. And it makes perfect sense. And uh, what that means, though, is that any momentum that some of those issues were getting in the news to lock on to our attention and to potentially shift the way that citizens think about things or what policies we put into place, all of that momentum is now lost. With regard to the types of attention that the COVID-19 um, pandemic has been receiving, it, it has been following the standard model of, of what I and co-authors in our research have called a media storm, where this was an unexpected pandemic, or at least the timing of it was unexpected, and, and news outlets lurched onto it as soon as they figured out that it was going to be a big deal and citizens lurched their attention in lockstep. And we saw a rapid increase in attention for now a sustained period. And it would be hard to look back in history and find too many other recent examples of media storms that lasted as long as I expect this one will last. The only other point of comparison that comes to mind is the terrorist attacks of September 11th. Mm -hmm. But thinking about the specific frames that have been used, um, I, I haven't done any, any content analysis, but, but just as a normal observer, it seems that news outlets have been, have been shifting from covering all of the facts, all of the scientific detail of the virus to thinking about, about how politicians are are handling it to talking about the, you know, three things to do to keep your toddler entertained while you're uh, sheltering in place, those kinds of, those kinds of things. I'm imagining that in newsrooms around the country, they're stressed because journalists are humans too. And so they're dealing with all of the things that the rest of us are dealing with, but it's also 
an especially difficult piece of news for journalists to cover because there isn't a lot of new information day by day except to give updated counts of this horror. And so that means that they don't have new, they don't have too many new angles to bring to the story, but we also don't want to uh, look at anything else except, of course, for those um, those of us during those times in the day when we want to think about something else. And so we're very welcome uh, to have the the distracting news articles about the Kardashians or or whatever it is. So that's all to say that in this media storm, we've seen fewer different ways of framing the issue than we normally do during a media storm, again, from my uh, informal observation. But that makes a lot of sense because, again, there's not, uh, the story is unfolding, but there aren't, there aren't a lot of different angles to, to cover. It's really bad. We don't have all the information yet to, uh, to be able to forecast with any kind of certainty. And so news outlets are forced to, to give us the constant updates and to flush out wherever they can any kind of political uh, bickering or, or those how-to lists or any kind of other angles, but there's not a lot for them to work with. So I'm really feeling for them right now. This feels like a moment where, you know, the public is craving information and the media is trying to provide it. But it's also this moment where it's really coming into stark relief. The idea that what we've gotten used to with regard to information flow is we want to know everything right now. And though that hasn't always been possible, now we're seeing sort of the the fracturing of that because people want to know how long does it last? When can I go outside? When can I do this? Give me, you know, give me a date. And those, we don't have the answers to those things yet. Something like this takes research. It takes, uh, it takes study. It takes looking at data to start to form answers and then to evolve those answers as more data comes in. And that's not necessarily a place where the general public exists often. You know, we, we, we certainly want information and we want it now, though it does seem that people are starting our, um, at least people where I am, again, anecdotally, people seem to have an understanding of that. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I think we, we always want information right now, and especially during a pandemic when, when it's not just information for our curiosity's sake or because we want to track something uh, important going on in the world, but also because we're concerned about our own health and safety and those of our loved ones. Normally, when we have some kind of situation unfolding in the world where people are hungry for information, that information comes uh, relatively soon. And we have the attention span societally that we can hang on until we get that new information. The usual path that a media storm takes is, is that it's a surge of attention at the beginning when we realize, when we as the public and, and journalists realize that there's some big thing to talk about. It gets talked about in all of the different ways. The situation unfolds in as many ways as it's going to unfold for the duration of our attention span. And then even if the situation hasn't resolved itself, at some point we lose interest, journalists lose interest, and we, we uh, lurch to the other next big thing. What's challenging, one of the things that I talk about in my last book is that there are some benefits to news cycles operating in this uh, lurching fits and starts kind of dynamic. And yet there are also some, some downsides. And one of the downsides I argue in the book normatively 
is that when we as citizens have a pattern of information coming to us from news media that moves in this lurching pattern where all of a sudden everything that we're thinking about has to do with 9-11 or the Trayvon Martin shooting or uh, whatever it is, our attention gets fixated to that. But then when it drops off the media radar, I worry, and I don't know that anyone has tested this, but I worry at least that it sends us as citizens a signal that that story is wrapped up, that that thing that we were worried about, we don't need to worry about it anymore. And and that's not the fault of news outlets per se. They go, their dynamics are fueled largely by what it is that we click on and by our consumer behavior. But in any case, we live in a world where we get these bursts of news about hot stories. And when it falls off the paper at the end of a, new, of a media storm, I suspect that most citizens then drop it off of their internal radars as well. It's true. When the media starts to diversify its coverage, which will come, that that is taken as a signal subconsciously like, oh, great. Now I can go outside. I guess I'll go to the beach. Maybe it's not as bad as I thought because it's not at me 24-7. And that's a really important and powerful thing to remember, especially dealing with something like this. That timeline for media storms, as I said, tends to be relatively short, that if something hooks the media agenda such that no matter which source you're looking at, you're seeing the same basic types of stories for a couple weeks. That's an eternity in the news industry. Looking back to the September 11th attacks, that media storm lasted about three months. That is just that's monumental. I'm guessing that this one will last longer. One of the things that I'm worried about is that, of the many, many things that there are to be worried about, but as a scholar, one of the things that I'm worried about is that we have become accustomed as as citizens, all of us, including Americans, to media storms that don't last that long. And I'm worried that in addition to uh, becoming complacent about not washing our hands as frequently, we'll also become complacent about monitoring the news, either because we're just not used to having to attend to something for this long, or because we hit a saturation point where we just can't take it anymore. I think back to 9-11, and the Paris attacks, but 9-11 in particular, that happened and it was profound. I was working in the news at that time. But when we started to pivot away from it or to diversify our coverage a bit, it wasn't going to necessarily lead to more death or anything like that. Right. Whereas this actually has a profound implication on on public health. And that's something we haven't in recent in living memory ever faced before. And that means that the way we engage uh, the dance between media and audience definitely has to be rethought. And I don't know, I I wonder if we as a society are able to do that. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, so a couple of thoughts. The first is that, that you're exactly right, that journalists um, that I've uh, talked to echo exactly your experience that after September 11th, there was a real um, reluctance to shift media attention away from this catastrophe that had that had shaken uh, people around the world to their core, and that it, it felt disrespectful in some ways to shift attention away. But there weren't there wasn't a cost in in safety to doing so. And this is very different, both in that there aren't the kinds of of continuing uh, unfurling of the story to. Uh, to allow journalists to sink their teeth into to tell this story 
from lots of different ways. And that if they slip and shift to their coverage so that instead of 80% of the front page of each newspaper and the respective TV shows paying attention to the to the pandemic only 50%, that that really could result in people's lives being lost. But again, back to what we were talking about earlier, it's just, it's a genuinely challenging uh, moral and logistical dilemma for news outlets because there are only so many ways of writing the story about how you should be washing your hands uh, frequently. There are only so many ways to put that and there are only so many stories that you can write about family dynamics shifting and involving during the during these shelter-in-place times, and there are only so many stories that you can write about whatever kind of political infighting might be happening or not happening at the White House or within the CDC. And after that, if there's no new information, if we don't have any new information about a potential vaccine or or anything else, then it's just the updating of the of the death toll, which is important, and people will continue to click on it. But that's not enough to fuel 80% of the page going forward. So in the midst of this horrifying situation, I, it would still be um, academically fascinating to, to be in the room at those page one meetings at the news outlets around the, around the world, um, getting a sense of what, they're, of what they're thinking, what their strategy is going forward. Because I'm sure that they're aware of this, that, that it's not just a matter of making sure that they've done their due diligence and telling us what we need to know, but that in some ways they probably feel a responsibility to continue to tell us every day so that we don't become complacent. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. Today, we're talking with Dr. Amber Boydston, Associate Professor of Political Science at UC Davis and author of Making the News, about media framing and audience attention in a time of COVID-19. Well, the media has a responsibility to inform the public. But as far as the responsibility of, oh, if we pivot, then the public's going to take that as a cue, I'm not sure the news media in general is thinking in those terms, because the news media in general is thinking about the critical role of informing the public and making sure the public has information and making sure they're holding power to account and making sure they're fact-checking, et cetera. It is going to be interesting uh, to see that pivot. I also wanted to bring up the, um, you know, you you brought up the whole political dance that's going on. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, in in the midst of what you term, you know, what you said, this horror, but in the midst of this pandemic where lives are lo- being lost and going to be lost, we have this political wrangling going on about which frame or, you know, which narrative is going to win. And uh, I've, I've got to say that as... As someone who sits in a privileged position and is able to sort of watch and analyze all of this without having to worry about my next meal, my next paycheck, my next roll of toilet paper, I'm saddened to see that uh, that wrangling is going on and that that framing is that there is a struggle for framing when I would like to see us all come together and that the framing is around things that are so critical as getting ventilators to hospitals and getting supplies to public healthcare care workers. So I'm, I'm wondering if, if you'd be willing to address the idea of the battle for a narrative or the battle for framing that comes from those who have the mic. When you say the battle for framing for, um, among those who have the mic, are you talking about journalists and, and editors? Or are you talking about politicians? Well, I'm talking about politicians primarily, and I journalists and editors, I think, would play a role because as the gatekeepers, they would decide what to let through. So, for example, um, 
we have the president trying to frame the narrative as, you know, he was always concerned when, of course, you know, there's video to show that that's not true. We have uh, news conferences being run live in their entirety across news outlets, which is generally the right thing to do. But those news conferences may contain uh incorrect or unverified information and so all of a sudden it's not only the role to air the news conference and analyze it but there's a there's an added role of moment by moment fact checking and so there are politicians you know various politicians seeking different frames and of course I'm thinking of the president but even you know the governor of New York the governor of California are doing an objectively great job but also thinking about this moment and how they and their efforts will be remembered in this moment. Uh, and then there are journalists who have to make the decisions about what information gets out there and how. So there are a lot of levels of this framing, but I do think that there's a little bit of a battle going on. Um, and, and I'm thinking in particular of the president and the administration, uh, but I think it's happening at all levels. I think you're right. And I think that that is, that is politics as usual. Uh, I would be hard pressed to to come up with any other crisis in recent memory where where politicians at all levels weren't at minimum aware of the narrative that they were shaping and and in almost every case trying to influence that narrative. That's that's what they do as politicians. And what journalists do is, as you say, to gatekeep and try to let only the quality information through. But again, their their goal is to give us all of the information, to give it to us from lots of different angles, and they need to to fill the news hole. And so what that means is that they're at some point we're usually going to get the many different angles that are coming through and some of those narratives are going to be stronger than others. So I so I agree that it's it's unfortunate that in addition to trying to uh, combat the the virus that there's also this political uh, maneuvering but that that seems um it's maybe strange to say but that that seems to bring a little bit of normalcy to this uh to the situation and so um i don't know i i am i'm strangely comforted <laughs> that <laughs> I, I wonder if i i i mean this um uh satirically but but uh, I think that if all of a sudden everyone was getting along, it really would start to feel like the end of days. Okay, that's completely fair. I think you make an excellent point. So there's some no- there's some normalcy in our lives. Thank you, politicians, for being for being. Thank you, you politicians, <laughs> for being you. <laughs> uh, there's <laughs> there's another element of of framing that I find fascinating, and so I'd love to sh- throw it out there and see what you think. And this doesn't just come from this moment, but I'm seeing it in this moment. I remember. Um, I'll start with an anecdote. Several years ago, uh, I used to work at a, a news station here in the Bay Area, and we did a story, uh, a colleague aired a story on uh, an ad blocker software. And, then, and the framing of the story was businesses are very upset that this ad blocker is gaining traction because they're going to lose money, et cetera, et cetera. And I was also teaching at the time. And, and so I was thinking, gosh, that my students aren't, that story won't resonate with my students at all because to my students, an ad blocker is a godsend, right? It, it stops the ads from getting out at them while they're trying to, you know, whatever, scroll or, or stuff or whatever and so I, I I always I always think about that like that story the audience for that 
the frame was for a business audience, for an audience of small business owners or an audience of, of people who, um, who work in and, and derive their income from business. Whereas, you know, the frame I might have written or a student newspaper might have written would have been totally different. With that frame in mind and watching the narratives of the COVID-19 pandemic, and certainly I recognize that I say this from somewhat of a privileged place. You know, I, I am, uh, you know, still getting a paycheck. I'm still working, though, remotely. I, you know, I have everything I need. So far, everyone in my family is healthy, knock on wood. Uh, and the economic story here is quite critical and quite important. Um, but there are other stories, I think, that are also uh, important. And I feel uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel that that economic story, it, the frame is allowing a lot of political attention to go toward corporations and big business. And we saw in the wrangling of the bill uh, at the beginning, there was a lot of relief directed toward major businesses, major corporations, and maybe not enough in some people's eyes toward the average everyday person who was being affected. You know, I know this is a lot. I promise it's getting somewhere. But then, you know, in the, my own experience going out for walks in my neighborhood, the air is so clear. I can see forever. And I'm like, wow, the environment is really healing in some ways, even though there are, um, you know, you know with, with bad comes some good at some point. And so I think, you know, there are, there are other narratives here. And, and when we get through this, I would love for us to be able to think about all of the elements of it, not just the economic element. I'm not quite sure we will, um, but I but I wonder, you know, and maybe the frames that I've got in my head right now aren't appropriate frames to be talking about. But I was wondering if you'd be willing to explore with me or comment on the the aspect of um, framing with regard to who is getting or which elements of our society are getting the most attention versus those who might need more attention or more um, focus? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Well, uh, let me back up here and just note my perspective on, on the framing process. So if we define framing as, as describing an event or an issue or a, a cat or a dog, whatever it is, in one way, at the necessary neglect of alternative ways that we could be describing that thing, that's framing. In my perspective, politicians intentionally frame all the time for really understandable reasons. It's uh, very much in their, uh, their interest, even if they are completely uh, good-spirited and they, they genuinely got into office in order to advance the, the needs of their constituents, it's always going to be to their benefit and to their constituents' benefit to frame a given issue or a given policy consideration in a way that is going to um, best advance their, their particular cause. My sense is that journalists uh, also intentionally frame, but not usually with that kind of political strategy in mind. Rather, they pick the angle of the story angle. I think uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's the, it's the phrase that that journalists would use. They pick the yes. angle that is most compelling or most novel or is going to be most informative to their, uh, to their constituents, to their readers or their audience. So we, again, always have this tension between the types of frames that, that politicians and other political actors are, are pushing quite strategically and then the frames that journalists 
pick up in large part be, uh, as a direct um, channeling of those or indexing of those of those frames that politicians are giving them, but also the frames that they're seeing the different angles of the story that that need to be told in order to inform and and entertain and enlighten their their audience. What uh, I think what's interesting in this particular case, uh, lots of things are interesting in this particular case. So the first thing that's interesting is that unlike other media storms, again, it does seem like there are fewer ways of thinking about this crisis than there have been lots of other crises. So I'm thinking, for example, about the uh, about the uh, Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, Missouri, that, that there were so many different ways of entering that story, some of them uh, more and less beneficial to different political actors who were involved, and all of them of interest to audiences and thus to, to journalists. In this case, there really are, I think, a, a smaller number, I mean, this is a, a highly subjective way of thinking about it, but it does seem like there are fewer ways to enter this story. You can think about it from a public health perspective, you can think about it from a economic perspective, and you can think of it, about it from a quality of life, um, you know, the air is cleaner, environmental. I mean, there are those other ways of thinking about it, but it does seem like this is a rare media storm where there are really two main dominant narratives. One is about public health and one is about economic health. And so that's interesting right out of the gate. I'm guessing that if someone did uh, a careful quantitative content analysis across lots of different news sources, that we would see both of those narratives, both of those frames uh, come to light as, long, as well as, as all of the other um, different angles like you know, family home dynamics during, during the shutdown and the quality of the, of the air. And in fact, I've seen, I've seen in just my normal citizen observation of the news, I've seen all of those frames at some point or another. You make a great, I, I hadn't considered it until you just described it, but it is true. There are primarily two frames to this story, whereas other stories you can access from different ways. That was really enlightening for me to uh, recognize. I would say, though, that within the economic frame, we could break that into subframes. And for me, the economic frame involves framing for large corporations, framing for the small business owner, framing for the worker who doesn't have any protections. Um, and I think it would be a lot of fun to do a content analysis on those different frames uh, on the other side of this, and also how this story was framed in other nations who faced crisis. I know it's too early and it's all anecdotal at this point, but once we move through this, uh, if I'm able, I think that would be an incredible exploration. The other thing of interest, as you note, is that these frames are different in the degree of attention that they focus on different segments of society. That if you're someone who, as I am, is privileged enough to have a steady paycheck and to not worry about toilet paper or or how I'm going to pay the rent, and I don't have the type of job that requires me to have physical contact with other people, then of course I'm going to be more concerned about the, about the public health uh, element than the economic one, but there are so many people out there who, who aren't in the privileged position that I am, and they of course want to know about the economics. And, and those are not just uh, people who are struggling financially, but also, of course, the big businesses. 
So that's a, an interesting development and one that we've seen at other times. I'm thinking again about the about the Ferguson, Missouri media storm. And you could certainly argue that the different, more dominant narratives there shed different amounts of light on different types of populations. That was right at the uh, start of the momentum of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so all of the discussion about Black Lives Matter and about racial injustice shined a light on, on communities of color, whereas all of the discussion about police safety and chain of command shined a light on police around the country. So this is not unprecedented, but it's, I think, made more acute these divergent narratives against the backdrop of this political contest that we're in leading up to the presidential election in the fall. Amber, thank you so much for being here and for the incredible discussion. We've been talking with Dr. Amber Boydston, Associate Professor of Political Science at UC Davis and author of Making the News, about how media influence framing and attention. Next week, we'll air part two of our interview with Dr. Boydston, focusing on social media and our own behavior as media audiences and consumers and people connected to other people in communities. You have been listening to News in Context. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing News in Context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Twitter at News in Context SF, and you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.